Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Reporting tonight from Berlin. How do you measure such an astonishing moment in history? The East German government said tonight they were going to make more openings in the wall, at least a dozen more, put bulldozers right through the wall so that more people could cross to the West. The East German when the Berlin Wall came down 30 years ago, it was the beginning of the end of the Cold War. A few days later, I called up Zvignev Brzezinski. President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor. I asked Brzezinski, how had the long struggle with the Soviet Union resolved itself in our favor? Zhivig told me the key to all of it had been the rise of a pro-democracy movement in his native land, Poland. Poland, September 1939. Poland's 34 million inhabitants, crushed, scattered, and enslaved. Poland had arguably seen more war over the course of its thousand-year history than any country on Earth. The Hitler-Stalin non-aggression pact has led to the partition of Poland. Yet the Polish spirit was never conquered, even after the Soviets seized the country at the end of World War II. That's Poland's national anthem. The first line is, Poland is not yet lost. Stalin knew he couldn't keep Poland under his boot heels forever. Communism does not fit the Poles, he said. They are too individualistic. As we'll find out, he was right about that. The resistance to communist rule in Poland began in 1945, the moment the Second World War was over. The most prominent guerrilla group was the Freedom and Independence Movement. Its initials in Polish were W-I-N, WIN. WIN waged guerrilla warfare against the Soviet army and its communist allies in Poland. They attacked police forces, freed political prisoners, and spread news to the outside world about fraudulent Polish elections. In 1948, the newly created CIA began receiving messages from Wynn. Send help, the messages said. Poland was not yet lost. The CIA's covert action czar, Frank Wisner, was thrilled. 
he began to plan a major paramilitary operation to help the Polish patriots fight the Soviet-backed government in Warsaw. He envisioned a force of 20,000 freedom fighters who could rebel against communist oppression. From 1950 onward, the CIA parachuted dozens of Polish agents behind the Iron Curtain to support Wynne. The CIA's pilots dropped weapons, clandestine radios, spy gear, and about $5 million in cash and gold into Poland in the name of the struggle. And then, on December 28, 1952, the Polish state radio went on the air with a devastating bulletin. Wynne had been a sting, a deception operation. All those patriots the CIA thought they were helping, the Soviet and Polish intelligence services controlled them. The awful truth was that the rebels had been wiped out in 1947. The CIA was arming and equipping an illusion. The Polish government gleefully announced it was sending the CIA's money to the Communist Party in Italy. You can probably guess what happened to the CIA's Polish agents. They had been captured or killed. In Washington, the State Department's senior liaison to the CIA, a man named Robert Joyce, wrote a top-secret memo calling the Wynn operation an appalling setback. In Poland, he wrote, the perfection of totalitarian police state techniques is approaching 1984 efficiency. Resistance can probably exist only in the minds of the enslaved peoples. Poland was one of the great powers of the world. Poles do not forget this. Their patriotism, their pride in Poland as a nation, is intense and bound up with centuries of tradition. The Poles couldn't bring down Big Brother by force. Their spirit would have to be their salvation. Exactly 30 years after that disaster, the CIA set out to liberate the minds of the enslaved. They did it by sending secret support to another underground resistance movement. Frank, it's a crisis which threatens Poland's current communist political system. It began weeks ago with a series of wildcat strikes to protest rising food prices and to demand higher pay. The strikes have been spreading, and the issues have broadened to include a long list of social and political grievances. It was called Solidarity. It was a trade union born in the shipyards of Gdansk that would one day shake the Kremlin to its foundations. I'm Tim Weiner, and this is Whirlwind. In today's episode, the untold story of how the CIA helped Solidarity bring down the Soviet Empire. The veterans of the fight to liberate Poland in the 1980s are growing old now. Among the youngest is Jacek Bendikowski. Today, he's a lawyer and a political activist. Four decades ago, he was a kid in Gdansk, the seaport city where solidarity started. The 70s were actually the best decades of communism in Poland. I think it is quite normal if you look at the history that uh, revolutions appeared not only in the moment when the regime is the toughest, 
but they appear when the regime softens its policies a little bit. And uh, the policy of the communists in Poland was softened in the 70s. So from the perspective of a teenager, it was not as ugly as you could imagine. This was probably one of the reasons and the opposition in Poland flourished in the 70s. And Gdańsk was definitely the uh, one of the most active places for opposition in Poland. And strikes broke out in Gdańsk in 1980. What happened? Gdańsk historically has always been a very free-minded city. It was the, the, the richest city in this part of Poland in the Middle Ages. Always, it was a strong independent city republic, which was a part of the Polish kingdom, uh, but always being able to take care for its own interests. It was a seaport, so seaports are always as well a little bit more free in mind because you have an access to foreigners, you have an access to 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 freedom which comes from the sea. It was more easy to get foreign newspapers here, which could be smuggled, or or foreign books or foreign movies. So uh, it was making uh, Gdańsk a little bit more free than other parts of Poland. And uh, the opposition, therefore, was quite strong. And what are the demands? The, the, the demands were basically that, uh, that, that the workers want to have independent representation, which will represent their own interests, because they want to be represented vis-à-vis -vis the authorities. They would like to, of course, have a sort of uh, better service, Uh, better uh, uh, supply in shops and uh, and better money. The the release of people who were in prison, political prisoners, and the establishment of independent trade unions, where actually it was actually the most strong, the strongest demand politically you could imagine. It was an expression of of the society to to decide by ourselves what we want to do. So it was a national movement of self-determination called trade union because it was the only institution which could be legalized uh, under communism uh, being more or less independent. And here's the nightmare of Soviet communism. It's founded on the concept of class struggle, the power of the proletariat, And here comes the proletariat to overthrow the system. It was disclosing uh, that the king is naked. The, the, the system did not fulfill its absolutely basic principle upon which it was founded. Socialism was a political system for the workers. And it was actually not working for the workers because the workers were not entitled to speak freely. A strike at Poland's biggest shipyard in Gdansk has spread to two other shipbuilding complexes in that northern industrial city. In all more than 50 Out of the shipyard strike in Gdansk is born the movement Solidarity. How do the people of Poland outside Gdansk know about Solidarity? It is as well quite interesting story because Gdansk was cut off uh, uh, from the rest of Poland during the strike. Okay, they did the, the commies, they cut off the telephone lines. There was no connection. You couldn't call from Gdańsk elsewhere. Uh, you couldn't travel. <laughs> We were stuck in the city. Telephone lines went down. The telephone lines were cut off, yes. Yeah. So we, we, we couldn't call our friends in Warsaw or, or elsewhere. But the information anyway was smuggled. 
uh, the, the strikes were all over Poland. The, the, the concept of the commies was to kill, to extinguish the, the, the fires independently in, in the major places. But the, the information was being spread by the existing opposition people. Uh, because even though, uh, I mean, CORE was established in Warsaw, but it was already having national branches in various parts of the country. Young Poland movement was established in Gdansk, but we had branches in different places of the country. The independent trade unions, the illegal ones, uh, they were established in Gdansk and in Silesia, but they had branches all over the country and they transferred the information between each other. So uh, the, the information was being spread. To whom? to people protesting in other parts of Poland. And it was as well smuggled through the journalists, Western journalists, to, uh, I mean, what was the major source of information to cause Radio Free Europe? Radio Free Europe was extremely important, you know. I mean, as a kid, uh, I was woke up every day in my room with the noises, strange noises from the kitchen when my father was waking up and was making his coffee and, uh, and, and breakfast, uh, he was turning on Radio Free Europe, which was a horrible thing to listen because uh, the, the commies tried to, to make it impossible to listen. They had the special machines which were, which were creating uh, noises, uh, creaks, uh, holds. Uh. They were jamming. Yes, they were jamming, okay. You know, you described this period, you called it carnival, right? I mean, it was carnival. It was a fantastic period because, I mean, Poland was the most joyful barrack in the uh, in the Warsaw Pact already in the 70s, but this period 1980-1981 was, was absolutely extraordinary because the, suddenly the country became free. In my family, we were reading illegal literature and illegal books. My, my, my parents spoke other languages, so we had access to foreign books. But it was all a little bit in secret. I mean, you, you never know what you could share with friends in the school. Uh, I mean, during the, the, the carnival, I mean, people were speaking freely. So we were reading uh, writers and poets who were forbidden for the past 40 years. And it was something which was amazing. You know? So uh, we, we call it carnival because it was a carnival. A news blackout is still in effect in Poland, but based on reports that have reached us, the new military government has apparently successfully taken control. Prime Minister Jaruzelski cracked down yesterday and early this morning, rounding up dissidents and former government officials and declaring martial law. When did the regime impose martial law in Poland and why did they do it? Mm, the martial law was imposed uh, during the night from the 12th to the 13th of December. 1981, after one year and a half of carnival, the period of freedom. So you, you, had, you had radio programs, you had television programs. I mean, suddenly, Solidarity uh, got over 10 million members in a 35 million uh, uh, country. One third of the country was mem were, were members of the trade union. Uh, it was the strongest organization ever in Europe uh, established in, in a very short time. So from the communist point of view, of course, it, it was an extraordinary threat. And the commies from the very beginning were wondering how to kill the beast. Uh, Brezhnev got mad and he expressed clearly that the Polish Communist Party must make it over. I mean, the beast must be killed. The power in the country was moved from the hands of the parliament and the governments and the national council to the hands of the military. 
they imprisoned the majority of the leaders uh, of Solidarność and opposition during that night, uh, from the 12th to the 13th. And then uh, within the next few days, uh, they were arresting all those who ha they haven't managed to arrest during the first, uh, during the first night. So up to 10,000 uh, leaders of opposition uh, were uh, imprisoned during these few days. People are allowed to drive in Warsaw, but they cannot buy gasoline. Everywhere, the army patrols with fixed bayonets. They've surrounded the television station, Communist Party offices, and headquarters of the Solidarity Union. A 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew has been imposed. All public meetings are banned. No foreign travel is allowed. Essential services have been militarized, including the post office, transportation departments, and telephone offices. Workers in those services must follow orders as though they were military orders. Anyone who doesn't will be sentenced to death. How did the underground resistance survive under the first year of martial law? A number of people managed to escape, and they were hiding themselves, some until 84. The printing machines and the polygraphy remained uh, underground, remained hidden. So we, we, we kept the abilities of polygraphy, printing illegal materials to, to, to access the people with information, which is always very important. 82 was a very tough year, but the, the, the opposition survived. Every Sunday in Warsaw, there is a military parade. This Sunday is no exception. The government news media tell the nation that the armed forces will save Poland. Prime Minister Jaruzelski says the military is in charge, but only temporarily, until the state of war is over. What does an underground movement under martial law look like? Underground? I mean, are people living in cellars? Are they adopting disguises. Underground means that you are illegal, so what you do is illegal, and it must stay more or less in secret. Uh, you had to take care that you don't talk anything by phone, that you don't talk to people you don't know, you don't share too many information with uh, uh, with, with, with everybody. I, I was not even talking to my mom about a lot of things. Uh, not because I would be afraid of my mom, but not a, first of all, not to bother her. B, not to, to, she was not trained, she was never trained. So not to allow her maybe to sell something to, to a stranger or to share her worries with, with a stranger. But of course, on the other hand, the, the, the activities of the underground movement was supposed to, to be known to the rest of the society because you resist, but the people must know that, you, that there is a resistance movement. Uh, so you must produce books, you must produce uh, illegal literature, which must have an access to the people. So you must distribute it uh, uh, somehow. So the process of distribution was extremely important, that this information had to be distributed to the people. The, the technical part was the most difficult because you needed really rooms, you needed big rooms uh, uh, for printing newspapers or printing books or, or keeping paper which was, I mean, under socialism, uh, there was a shortage of everything. In general, there was a shortage of paper, and imagine the shortage of paper for illegal um, activities. So you had to organize it illegally, you had to store it illegally, you had to transport it illegally. So I, I managed actually myself to escape twice from the from militia transporting books in a small fiat. 
uh, uh, which was always funny. But and when you are 18 years old or 19 years old, you do a lot of crazy things, not always thinking about consequences. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jacek Bendikowski told us about growing up during a time of change in Poland, and he described listening to one radio station in particular. This map shows Radio Free Europe's target countries. We broadcast 18 hours a day to Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary, and five hours a day to Romania and Bulgaria, a total of 80 million people who lost their freedom after World War II. Radio Free Europe was created in 1950, and until 1972, it was owned, operated, and financed by the CIA. From its headquarters in Munich, Radio Free Europe broadcast news, salted with propaganda, in the native languages of its target countries. I and my colleagues are exiles from communism. There are almost 500 exiles working for RFE. Editors, actors, announcers, researchers, monitors. My job is newscasting. Reading the news in my native language, Polish. The communists tried to jam its broadcasts, but the sound of Radio Free Europe still came through. Most programs are tape recorded so that they can be broadcast over several transmitters at the same time or repeated later. This is one way to overcome communist jamming. There are about 100 tape recorders in the building. But Radio Free Europe was not the only show in town. There was also the Voice of America. The Voice of America was a different network on a different wavelength with no CIA connections. It first went on the air in 1942 as a way to combat Axis propaganda in World War II. Here spricht eine Stimme aus America, aus America im Krieg. Its first director was John Houseman. Later an Oscar-winning actor. But at the time, he was best known as one of the producers of Orson Welles' famous 1938 radio broadcast of The War of the Worlds, a program which terrified its audiences with a fake news broadcast of a Martian invasion of the United States. Right now, we're caught as we're wanted. A Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep on doing that. They'll begin catching us systematically, keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. The Voice of America came on air as World War II was raging. That was a challenge, as Houseman later told an interviewer. Inevitably, the news that the Voice of America would be carrying to the world in the first half of 1942 was almost all bad news as Japanese victories and invasions followed one another with sickening regularity, and the Nazi armies moved ever deeper into Russia and the Near East, we would have to report our reverses without weaseling. Only thus could we establish a reputation for honesty 
which we hoped would pay off on that distant but inevitable day when we could start boasting of our own invasions and victories. Victory came in 1945, and after the war, VOA kept broadcasting American news and culture around the world. It relied on the power of American music. Hausman later reflected, we found ourselves using music as an instrument of propaganda. One sound above all captivated the minds of the Polish people, and that was jazz. The music, African-American music, was a liberation force. Jazz was the sound of freedom. The music of jazz parallels the freedom that we have in America, something that not every country has. That's the voice of a jazz DJ on VOA named Willis Conover. He went on the air in 1955 for a run that lasted 40 years until his death. His whiskey and tobacco-cured baritone was instantly familiar to millions of people behind the Iron Curtain. Time for jazz. Willis Conover in Washington, D.C. with the Voice of America Jazz Hour. Everybody, even the communist commissars, loved Willis Conover. By early 1959, Conover had received sacks of fan mail from Poland begging him to come visit. He flew into Warsaw that June. He looked out the window of the plane when he landed, and he saw hundreds of people with cameras and tape recorders, girls carrying flowers, and he thought, I better wait until whoever that's for gets off the plane. He was the last person off the plane. The crowd went wild. That night and the next, musicians came from all over Poland at their own expense to perform for him at the National Philharmonic Hall to show him what they had learned from listening to his show. Naturally, Willis recorded and broadcast the concerts on the Voice of America. It is I who should applaud you for the warmth of the greeting you have given me here in Warsaw. Dziękuję. Conover was promoting music, but he was also promoting America. Upon his return from Poland, he told the New York Times that because jazz offered players the ability to express themselves freely, that, quote, jazz was a musical reflection of the way things happen in America. People in other countries can feel this element of freedom. They love jazz because they love freedom. Of course, the stars of Conover's shows, Duke Ellington, Thelonious Monk, Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, were black. And America was segregated, a never-ending theme for Soviet critiques of the United States. But Willis wanted to defeat that argument. As he often said, jazz corrects the fiction that America is racist. Now that was propaganda. Years later, when martial law was imposed, the Voice of America and Radio Free Europe played a vital role in sending news into Poland. 
no communications in the normal sense in or out of Poland as the martial law takes effect. All of the television within the state is, of course, being censored by the Polish Communist Party and the government. The Voice of America, broadcasting from Washington, has doubled the length of its newscasts in Polish in response to the Polish government's blackout on all but official information. The VOA broadcasts two and a half hours a day in Polish, sending a strong shortwave signal into the country. Officials estimate that as many as one-third of all adult Poles are listening to the broadcast. But radio alone could not free the Poles from martial law. And in 1982, the Solidarity Movement was on life support. Its leaders had been jailed. Its remaining members were underground. Its voice suppressed. Moscow today said the Union is deepening the Polish crisis. But the Kremlin rejected suggestions that Soviet military maneuvers around Poland are intended to intimidate Solidarity's leadership. Yet all was not lost. President Reagan praised the Solidarity Union on its anniversary and urged the Polish government to stop its repression against the Union. At the end of 1982, the CIA proposed, and President Reagan agreed, to start a covert operation to support Solidarity. It wasn't going to ship guns to Solidarity. That would be insanity. It was going to send a different kind of weapon. The operation had a code name, QR Helpful. QR was the code for Poland. Helpful kind of explains itself. I spoke with Bob Gates, one of the very few Americans who knew about the operation. Gates was the deputy director of the CIA in the 1980s, the CIA director from 1991 to 1993, and the secretary of defense from 2006 to 2010. I think what people... um need to appreciate is that initially the Reagan administration was pretty cautious about helping solidarity. The CIA director, Bill Casey, was among the most cautious. First of all, I think there was a concern in early 1981, right after the Reagan administration came in, that if the U.S. got too far, uh, was too aggressive uh, in, in working with solidarity and the opposition in Poland, that it would provoke a Soviet invasion. And it was only after the declaration of martial law toward the end of 1981 that CIA became very active in supporting solidarity. But after the declaration of martial law, the Reagan administration and CIA in particular became very active in supporting solidarity. And it was mainly, it was all non-lethal support. It was communications equipment. It was printing presses. Uh, it was uh, the ability for solidarity to get its message out uh, inside Poland. Did you or did anyone in the American government ever conceive that Poland could be the domino that toppled the Soviet empire? I don't know that we thought of it in those terms. I think we always believed that Poland was the most likely of the East European states to establish a greater degree of independence. The the church had always remained strong in Poland. The agriculture in Poland had never been taken over by the government. Uh, It was still largely privatized. And Poland had such a long history. And so I think that we, we certainly saw it as the most, uh, the regime there as the most vulnerable in Eastern Europe, the least likely to use force against their own people. 
and the most effective in protecting their sort of sense of nationhood. But in terms of them being the first country that would then lead to a cascade of uh, other East Europeans becoming independent, I don't think anybody really anticipated that. You know, it's like it's like everybody knew that the Soviet Union was going to collapse. The hard part was figuring out and predicting with any accuracy when. Uh, as I like to say, I think Reagan was the only person in his own administration, at least in the first term, who actually believed the Soviet Union could be brought down while in his lifetime and maybe even while he was president. And he did everything he could to increase the pressure on them. We, the people of the free world, stand as one with our Polish brothers and sisters. As a longtime union member and former union president, I feel a special bond with this courageous labor movement. Solidarity symbolizes the Was there an intellectual author of Helpful at the CIA who said to you and your colleagues, look, these guys don't need guns. They'll be crushed. What they need are the tools of a free press. I don't know that there was a single architect or person who conceived of it that way. I think I don't recall anyone ever uh, suggesting that uh, lethal assistance be provided to solidarity. So the key was how do you how do you strengthen their capabilities inside Poland to get their message across and to challenge the regime. So it was clandestine broadcasting, but also the the tools to create underground newspapers and magazines and ink smuggled in in, in Hershey's chocolate syrup bottles. This was quite a network. We smuggled millions of miniaturized copies of the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn into the Soviet Union, along with magazines and cassettes and all kinds of stuff. Those programs in the Soviet Union, as well as in Poland, were significantly accelerated and, and expanded during, uh, during the Reagan administration. One aspect of that was a really extraordinary uh, technological invention that allowed the Poles, allowed Solidarity, to take control of the, of the Polish state television signal for a limited period of time. And this whole operation could fit inside a large suitcase. But when it mattered the most was on the eve of the Pope's visit, first visit to Poland. Uh, the regime was doing everything in its power to keep his itinerary and, and the program secret because they didn't want large crowds out. And on the eve of the visit, with CIA's help, Solidarity took control of the signal and broadcast the itinerary, broadcast the program and so on. And one of the results was millions of Poles in the streets greeting, uh, greeting His Holiness when he visited Warsaw. Only one author has been able to look inside the secrets of Helpful and tell at least part of the story. We'll hear from him right after this break. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. 
Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bob Gates told us about the Reagan administration's decision to offer nonviolent aid to solidarity. And now we'll hear exactly what that aid was. Seth Jones runs the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. He's the author of the book, A Covert Action, Reagan, the CIA, and the Cold War Struggle in Poland. For the U.S. to authorize a covert action program in Poland was, in some ways, a risky venture. It was, it was potentially launching a major opposition movement in Poland, um, much as the Soviets had done in other Eastern European countries, including Hungary. It certainly was within the realm of possibility that anything the U.S. did would be followed by Soviet Red Army and even Warsaw Pact forces being sent to Poland that would kill any Polish opposition elements. So I think there was a period over the course of 1982 where there was a major debate within the National Security Council and then within various agencies like state, defense, and the CIA about what options the U.S. had. Uh, should it be largely a, a program that supported um, the, uh, the information campaign of solidarity, like its newspapers and radio programs? Should it involve weapons? If it involved weapons, what would be the downside? These kinds of questions took time in addition to whether the U.S. should even do it at all. So on November 4th, 1982, Reagan goes down into the Situation Room in the White House basement. They have a meeting of the National Security Planning Group, and he, on that date, authorizes covert action in Poland. What specifically did he authorize the CIA to do? The covert action program and the finding has not fully been declassified, but I spent time talking to a number of people that, that were present in the Situation Room at that time uh, and had conversations about what the debate looked like. And what I, what I found was interesting was during that debate and even leading up to it, that most of the people even that supported a covert action program to assist Solidarity and other opposition groups in Poland, they had very limited goals. Their goals were really to aid the organizational activities of Solidarity and other opposition groups. Their goals were also to improve the ability of these organizations to communicate with the Polish people and individuals outside of Poland because at the end of the day, uh, Solidarity and many of the Polish opposition was uh, pretty effective at publishing magazines, journals. They had the beginnings of a radio program and so part of what they really needed is help in communicating that. It was really an information uh, operation. And so the goal was not at that point at all to overthrow the regime, to trigger a collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. I mean, it was in many ways, it was not very ambitious. It was merely to keep an opposition movement alive. And I think that's what most people uh, generally suspected if, the program was to be successful at all. It would just make sure Solidarity was not entirely killed off by the Yarazelsky regime, the KGB, and then Moscow more broadly. Let's break down the structure of Helpful. Uh, 
Did it provide straight cash money to Solidarity? How, how did the money flow? The money was the primary lubricant for QR Helpful. So the CIA did not give much material to uh, individuals. They primarily gave cash that were used specifically for purposes uh, that would facilitate how Solidarity was running its information campaigns, duplicator machines, paper, reams of paper, printing presses, uh, and eventually technical assistance in building a radio station. So in that, in that sense, what CIA was doing was providing uh, money that the underground needed to continue to operate and get information to poles living inside of the country, as well as uh, in a range of individuals uh, well outside of the country. Part of Helpful was uh, Latin America-based. A chunk of it, the most important chunk, was in Europe, both Western and, and Eastern Europe. So uh, the information component was critical, and that's, that's really what case officers were doing, was giving money. Helpful is, in essence, a smuggling network. So how does it smuggle things like printing presses and ink into Poland? They, they couldn't call it FedEx. I think what's important to understand is uh, in a country like Poland, like in many countries in Eastern Europe, uh, because the West was, the Western economies were doing so much better that there were underground black market smuggling networks. Some went by land from countries like France, Italy, and West Germany into Eastern Europe, including Poland. Some went by sea, so through France or Belgium uh, into the North Sea and then around to the Polish coast. And so what the CIA did is identify black market smugglers that were already smuggling the kinds of equipment that they wanted to get to Solidarity and recruited them. So a lot of the focus early on was who should be recruited, who was already doing this. And in some cases, many of these individuals were smuggling uh, legal material into Poland, but were willing to, as part of the legal material they were smuggling, have in some of the boxes of soup cans, for example, which were legitimate, uh, some percentage of those boxes would have black ink for publication instead of soup. So these were individuals willing to work with them. And the general CIA tradecraft for this was uh, rat lines. These were rat lines running from Italy and France, Belgium, West Germany, uh, through uh, either land or maritime uh, routes into Poland. It was quite a complex uh, series of logistics routes that finally ended up in, in Solidarity underground shops. So as the CIA's black market uh, smuggling network grows, they have printing presses. Uh, I've, I've read that they dissembled a huge printing press in London and got it piece by piece into Poland. Is that right? Solidarity was in pretty difficult shape in uh, the post-martial law period. Um, but what members did is they established underground uh, printing shops, often in places like basements, or in a few cases, uh, they established separate apartments or separate houses, including in rural areas. 
that were designed to print material. And so what the CIA was providing would go into these printing shops. They would print newspapers. So they needed material to print newspapers, magazines. In some cases, if, if they were um, advertising issues, um, they would print leaflets or posters. And so they needed the material to do that. And in that sense, they also needed to be able to take down these underground shops pretty quickly and then have them pop up in other locations because there was this continuous cat and mouse game with uh, Polish intelligence, Polish law enforcement agencies and the KGB, which were constantly looking for uh, illegal solidarity printing places. So not only did they have to be clandestine in nature, but they had many of them had to be able to be taken down within an hour or so and then put up in another location pretty quickly so that they continue to print material. To reassemble a printing press was a pretty tough task, especially if some of the uh, parts never made it to the final destination. So while there were some uh, big examples like that, most of the material that was shipped was pretty easy to hide and pretty easy to reassemble duplicator machines, in some cases some Xerox machines, uh, reams of paper, ink, things that could be pretty easily used and weren't available in Poland, at least in the numbers uh, required to run the underground at that time. And soon their capabilities go beyond paper and ink to radio. How, how did radio solidarity take shape? Well, radio solidarity takes shape because it, it's, it's clear that a number of uh, individuals within Poland Radio was very influential, and they were listening to radio. And, and we, you can see that in my conversations with uh, Lech Wałęsa, where even during martial law, when he was under various uh, forms of house arrest, he was listening to Radio Free Europe, uh, Radio Liberty. He was listening to the BBC while in seclusion. Um, but these were all foreign sources of radio programs. And Solidarity felt pretty strongly that it needed its own radio program that could reach out to poles that had radios. So what the CIA does is it helps fund radio stations and the equipment used to both produce a radio show as well as to transmit the signals to larger and larger areas within Poland. And, and just like with the underground printing presses, those clandestine radio programs had to be able to move around pretty frequently because anytime radio broadcasts occurred, Polish intelligence and law enforcement agencies picked up pretty quickly where it was coming from and then worked as fast as they could to go shut it down. So it was a, the radio programs were constant cat and mouse as well. So by 1985, CIA had delivered the equipment for a network of mobile, clandestine television transmitters with a one-mile range in Poland. How did these secret TV stations work? What the CIA did was uh, provide some technical capabilities for individuals in solidarity to essentially break into TV programs. So just imagine for a moment that you're watching the evening news in Poland. And then 
what flashes across the screen is a banner that says in Polish, Solidarity Lives. And then also after that, encourages you to turn to a radio frequency so that you could hear uh, Solidarity Radio broadcast more detailed news, maybe poetry and other types of information. So the TV component was really the CIA providing technical capabilities so so that Solidarity could break into news programs. Solidarity did not provide much original content for news programs. They simply broke into programs that many Poles were watching. And what was important about that was it was a reminder to Poles that Solidarity continued to operate despite an extensive counterintelligence effort by Polish and Soviet agencies to stop it, they continued to operate. And I think that, among other things, uh, was an important goal of the CIA during this whole program as a reminder to Poles that there was an opposition element that continued despite communist rule in the country. It was an indication that the regime had cracks in it. And, And in addition, It was also a reminder to individuals that if they wanted additional information on solidarity, they could find it. It was readily accessible. They had to take some risks in listening to Solidarity Radio, or they had to take some risks in reading Solidarity newspapers, because if they were caught with them, there were were punishments that went along with it. But it really showed that the regime, despite all of its efforts to eliminate Solidarity could not do it. And there was probably no better way than to break into the state-run evening news. It was probably the, the single most significant way to show that the regime was, was not as strong, was not as competent, and was not as omnipotent as they had made themselves out to be. By the fall of 1986, Solidarity has scored an epic victory. The regime in Poland has given amnesty to most of the jailed underground Solidarity activists. And the power dynamic in Poland is shifting, isn't it? Yeah, the power dynamic is shifting in Poland, but more broadly. In Moscow, Gorbachev had come in and taken the reins of power. The Soviets were withdrawing forces from Afghanistan. Reagan and Gorbachev in October of 1986 had met in Reykjavik. So there were broader cracks in Soviet communism across Eastern Europe. There was no concrete arms control deal at Reykjavik. But what what you began to see with Gorbachev is that this was likely to be a very different uh, Soviet leader. So by 1986, there were a number of changes fundamental changes occurring in Poland and also more broadly across Eastern Europe and the Soviet sphere of influence. And this really allowed Cure Helpful to go to uh, a level that it had not gone to before and to put it on a path to become more involved in the political sphere. In an unprecedented move today, the Solidarity National Congress reached its hand across the border to workers in all the other nations of the communist bloc. 
Solidarity pledged support to any other group which, in Solidarity's words, is resolved to enter onto the difficult road of struggle for a free labor movement. A move calculated... By the end of the 1980s, uh, the spirit of Solidarity is flowing over Poland's borders uh, to the Czech Republic, to the Hungarians, to the East Germans. A chain reaction is happening. Poland is in many ways the first, though certainly not the only, area in Eastern Europe where we see opposition movements gaining momentum. Solidarity had survived martial law in part with help from the CIA, but also from uh, other foreign state and non-state organizations, including labor unions. But as we get into the late 1980s, those same opposition movements are expanding across Eastern Europe. So by 1987, 88, 89, um, Solidarity is not the only one. In fact, it's not, it's not even necessarily the largest. It just happens to probably be the, the longest in terms of how long it has operated underground. But we're now seeing the similar movements to Solidarity taking root across Eastern Europe. It's a, it's a stunning development. If you couldn't see the Soviet cracks in 1985 and 86, you definitely could by 1988. And in fact, the spirit of solidarity is not only spreading across its borders with its neighbors in Central and Eastern Europe, it's setting off strikes in the Soviet Union. There are growing strikes in the Soviet Union, and there are also growing strikes in Poland, of all places, including ones that were not even directly connected to solidarity. So there is a multiplier effect from what solidarity is doing across Eastern Europe, and including into the Soviet Union itself. And there were links between Solidarity and a number of opposition movements in Czechoslovakia, in East Germany. They were influential. In my judgment, the predominant influence from organizations like Solidarity to others across Eastern Europe was probably the example that Solidarity was setting, as opposed to specific information that was being provided, that it could operate now openly in countries like Poland, that the Polish government was unlikely to crack down by the end of the 1980s, and the Soviets certainly were not going to send Red Army forces into their countries. Do you see a line, however straight or crooked, between helpful and the fall of the Soviet Union? I think based on the way the late 1980s panned out, Helpful did play an important role, not the only role, in the ultimate collapse of the Soviet Union and of the Soviet grasp on Eastern Europe. Again, one could overstate it, but I think it played an important role. The butterfly effect. Yeah, the butterfly effect. The Cold War annals of the CIA are largely a litany of follies and misfortunes. The win operation in Poland that you heard about at the top of the episode was one among many such failures. And the costs of these disasters in dollars and in human lives was very high. 
But done right, covert action can work. And when it works, it can change the world. You won't find a bigger success story than helpful in the history of the CIA. And maybe that's why it stayed so secret for so long. Because it worked. But that wasn't the CIA's only success. In 1948, its first venture into political warfare met with victory. At that time, Italy was having a national election, and both the U.S. and Russia were keenly interested in its outcome. The communists were strong in Italy, but the CIA had a secret weapon, suitcases filled with cash. The money went to the conservatives, to the Catholic Church, and to members of the Mafia. It was quite a coalition. And that's the next episode of Whirlwind. The Voice of America, Washington, D.C., signing off. Whirlwind is presented by Cadence 13, Jigsaw Productions, and Prologue Projects. The show is written by me, Tim Weiner, and produced by Noel Mosban, Andrew Parsons, and Leon Nafop, with editorial support from Madison White. The story is based on my book, The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and Political Warfare. Some of the music you have heard featured Little Cheddar Studios, as well as Billy Libby. Whirlwind is executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Alex Gibney, Stephen Fisher, Stacey Offman, Richard Perello, Joey Mara, and John Schmidt. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.